two weeks ago on Easter Sunday, we started a brand new series on uh, the topic of reset. And uh, Easter Sunday was a big day for us. We had Easter Saturday night, actually, and then Easter Sunday, two services. And uh, that new series began that day and uh, was a good start. We talked about what it means to reset. The whole premise of the series is basically it'd be, be great if we had the opportunity to hit the reset button on certain experiences in our lives, maybe choices we've made or uh, embarrassing moments that have come, uh, things that we would do over in an instant if we had the opportunity to do that, but we can't. We can't go back and redo anything from the past so that life does not come with a reset button, but God does give us the opportunity to reset, and that's what we've been looking at over the course of these past couple of weeks, and the same this morning and the same next Sunday as well. Well, Easter Sunday, we looked at uh, John chapter 4, and uh, a woman that many who've read Scripture for many, many years understand to be the woman at the well. She doesn't have a name that was given to us, but simply, she really is a, just a great example, a beautiful example of what it means to reset from poor choices that we made, times of sin and, and uh, at times where we have, uh, ha- have wandered from God. You know, the whole context there was that Jesus had, a, commun- had a, a conversation with her and helped her to understand as he exposed the sin in her life. And when you read that passage, you see that many of her choices were rooted in uh, making decisions without God's input, basically. Uh, that he, he exposed her sin, Jesus did. And that exposure led to closure in her life. That When she dealt with her sin and she turned from it, she confessed it, and she she followed Christ as Savior and as Lord, that he brought closure to that sin. She became a brand new person. You can see that in John chapter 4. And the same for us. Exposure, when he convicts us of our sin, is so that we can see the books closed on that sin. We can forget about it, learn from it, but then move on. Well, then last Sunday, we looked at a message entitled Reset Failure. We looked at the life of Simon Peter and how the one thing that he's probably known for more than anything else was the fact that he denied even knowing Christ three separate occasions, back to back to back. And it was through that time of failure in his life, when he, when he uh, fell short of what he would have, have, have expected of himself, when he fell short of what God would have desired for him, that was to stand for Christ. Christ ultimately would reset his life as well. And one of the principles we looked at was that whenever we go through times of failure, that failure can either define us or it can refine us. We can either drag it around the rest of our lives and see ourselves in light of our failures, or we can allow God to use the failures that come in our lives to refine us, to make us stronger, to help us to be more dependent upon Christ and to ultimately trust in him and to walk forward with him from that point forward. So we looked at that last Sunday. Well, today I want us to look at a message entitled Reset rebellion. We're going to look at the topic of what rebellion is, how it operates, and how we can reset from those times whenever we choose to disobey and to uh, walk in rebellion to God, how we can reset from that. So turning your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, right towards the middle of your Bible, a little bit further toward, past the middle, but the book of Jonah, chapter 1. And what I want us to do is to, to trace a good portion of the first half of this book. It's not going to take us real long to do that, but to look through the first portion of the book of Jonah. And uh, we're going to begin here in just a few moments in chapter 1. And I want us to look at uh, the, the example that he gives us of what rebellion looks like and then how God ultimately gets us to the point to where we can reset from those rebellions and reset from those decisions to disobey God and how he often even helps us to do that in the process. So that's what we're going to look at today, a message entitled Reset Rebellion. Well, whenever we look to study the topic of rebellion, we have to really back up. We can't start with rebellion unless we understand the the playing field. And to understand rebellion, we have to first look at the concept of authority and how God is in authority over every single one of us sitting here in this room. God is in authority over everything that operates on the face of this earth. And we see that whenever we begin to read in the Bible. In fact, from Genesis chapter 1, 
the very first verse, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in that one simple verse, those ten words, there is a lot of truth that is wrapped up because it shows us that by virtue of the fact that he is, he is without beginning, without end, that God is independent, he is the creator, that in itself establishes the fact that God is in ultimate authority. You read in the book of Psalms, for example, you go halfway through the Old Testament, and in the book of Psalms, man, writer after writer after writer is talking about the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, which means his ability to control all things, it's talking about his, uh, his beauty, his magnificence, his splendor, his power, his might, his majesty, all those qualities are, are uh, made mention of in the book of Psalms. And it, it establishes the fact that God is in authority. And when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament treats it no differently. In fact, even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 28, the very last thing he would say before he ascends back up into heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says, given to himself. That God the Father has, has uh, given God the Son, Jesus Christ, all authority. And so whenever we look at the whole concept of authority, we understand that God has it. God has every bit of it. And, and if any person carries any authority whatsoever, it's because God chooses to, uh, to hand that over to them. But ultimately, God is in authority. He's in authority over your life. He's in authority over your workplace. He's in authority over this world by virtue of the fact that he is the creator. And so we cannot understand rebellion unless we first begin to understand authority. And the way that God has, has, has explained, or the way he has I guess we could say manifested his authority, is that he gives certain uh, boundaries to life. He gives certain decrees. He lays out truth. Those are all captured in the pages of, of Scripture. And those are put in place so that we might walk under his authority in obedience to him. And so whenever we begin to, to think through the whole concept of rebellion, we have to back up and we have to look at the concept of authority. And so that's what we establish, what Scripture establishes before you even got here this morning, that God is in authority because he's creator. He made us. He's the one who dictates the boundaries of life. He's the one who determines what is truth, what is not, what is right, what is not. He's the one who puts all that in place. Thankfully, he's communicated that to us in the pages of this that we call the Bible. Now, for us to understand rebellion, not only do we go back and we look at authority, but we have to also understand the concept of choice. That when God made you, he gave you the capacity to choose. The capacity to choose whether to walk under his authority or to step outside the bounds of his authority. He didn't create you as a robot, right? Thankfully so. It'd be, it'd be a very boring existence if all of us were the same. All of us were just uh, you know, robots, automatons that responded to God without any inclination, without any effort whatsoever. No, God created you and he created me with the capacity to choose. And love is not love unless it is chosen. If it's forced, then it is not love. God created us with the capacity to choose. And so we put all that together. Here's what we see. is that God is in authority. He demonstrates his authority through his truth through boundaries in life, through, uh, uh, through commands and through things that he communicates in his word. And we have the choice to choose whether to walk in obedience and under his authority or whether by choice to step out from under his authority and to ultimately rebel against him. So when we step out, that's what the Bible helps us to understand as being ultimately rebellion. Now when you think about rebellion, there are, I'm sure, some images that come to mind. 
When you think of people who are termed rebellious or rebels in our culture, there are pictures that come to mind. I was thinking through this when I was putting this message together. I thought, all right, so who, what, what are some pictures that come to mind of uh, people that the world would say, now that's a rebellious person. First name almost that I thought of, Dennis Rodman, right? You know Dennis Rodman. I remember him from back in the day when I you know, watched basketball all the time, and uh, he's now become a diplomat, but most people still, still recognize him as somewhat of a rebellious personality, right? And so uh, Dennis Rodman, is kind of the, the world's picture. Now, that's, that's a rebel. Now, that's, that's what rebellious looks like. Uh, Charlie Sheen, for example, you know, would be another example. When you think of him, he's always in the news for all the wrong reasons. You know, that's a person who doesn't know the boundaries. He chooses to step over the boundaries of what's right, what's proper, what's decent. And he chooses to live a rebellious life. Uh, I remember back in the day when I was at Georgia, and uh, I was a journalism major, so studied broadcasting and different stuff along those lines. I remember having a TV, uh, a broadcasting class, and uh, the, the, that was when The Simpsons were just coming onto the scene, right? This was the late 80s. And man, Bart Simpson just drew the criticism of like everybody in this country. Why? Well, he's just setting a poor example of a rebellious life, of a, of a rebellious lifestyle. And, and, and for a lot of people, that's the picture. You know, uh, the Fonz. Remember the Fonz from Happy Days, right? For some of you, you're like, now you're talking. I don't know who Bart Simpson is, but I remember the Fonz. James Dean, yeah, now you're, now you're, now you're talking down my, down, my, uh, yeah, down my life. But those are pictures of rebellion. So here's what we have to do. We have to take that picture of what the world sees as rebellion, and we, to a large degree, have to package it up and kick it to the curb. Because any time, regardless of how big it is or how small it is, any choice that we make, to where we step out and knowing what is right, if we step out and do what is wrong, that constitutes rebellion. Anytime that we as Christians know what God wants for us to do and we do something other than what God wants for us to do, that constitutes rebellion. You may say, nobody else even knows about it. I mean, come on, I'm not in the tabloids. I'm not all over the internet. It's just one little simple decision to step outside of what is right. It's not that big a deal. That constitutes rebellion. Because God, in his authority, has given us a conscience. He's given us a knowledge of what is right and wrong. He lays out for us in Scripture the parameters and the boundaries of life. And more often than not, we know what those boundaries and those parameters are. But whenever we choose to step outside in small ways or big ways, that constitutes rebellion. And so for some, the the, the question is, well, well, Brooks, here's the tension for me. If I'm in the midst of rebellion and I am actively disobeying God right now in my life, and I know it, but there's going to be a high cost for me to hit the reset button and to go back and step into obedience now, how on earth do I do that? Because for some, there is a lot at stake. As an example, maybe maybe for you, it's just a simple concept of, of lying. You know, Brooks, I, you know, I've had a hard time telling the truth. You know, I, I kind of shade the truth a lot of times. And, and, you know, if my boss only knew what the truth was, if my spouse only knew what the truth was, I'd, be, I'd really be in, 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 in a tight spot. And if I go back and I try to, if I just let people know, hey, what I have shared, you know, my resume or what I told you I did last Wednesday night or whatever it may be, if I go back and I try to hit the reset button on that now and I try to undo all that and I start telling the truth, hey, there are going to be a lot of people hurt and I don't know what's going to happen to me if I do that. 
Or maybe for some, it's a relationship. Maybe you're a single person, and, and you're in a relationship, and you just know it's not right. You, you know in your heart you don't have a good feeling about it, but you're, you're stepping into that relationship as a single person, or maybe there's some boundaries crossed there, and you just haven't felt comfortable with it. You know it's not what God wants. You just know it's not, not within that area of, of what, what the bullseye would be for God's desires for you, and yet you're really wrestling with what to do. And you say, Brooks, if I hit the reset on that, man, I'm going to be lonely. You know, I'm going to lose a relationship here. And it's not so easy to hit reset and, and just to expect that everything's going to be okay. It's going to cost me if I hit reset. Or maybe you're a married person and you've crossed a line. And, and you say, Brooks, if I hit reset on this and my spouse knows what I've been doing, or if they understand where I've gone on the internet, or they know who I'm spending some time with, if I hit that reset button and I choose to make things right, I might lose, I might lose face in my community. I may, uh, I, I may have a, a huge battleground at home. It's going to cost me if I do this. Or I've been stealing from my workplace. My boss doesn't know what I've been taking from, the, from, the, uh, from, from my workplace. And if I hit reset, I might lose my job. I'll get fired if anybody knows this. So you're telling me that I've got to go back and make all this right? That's the tension. The question is, do we continue down a track of rebellion and doing what's wrong? Or do we hit reset? And we'll see what that looks like in just a second. Do we hit reset, and do we do the right thing? Here's a principle I hope you'll jot down. It's not, it's, not, it's not new. Your grandma probably taught it to you. And this is it, that it is rarely the wrong time to do the right thing. It is rarely. Brooks, why not never? Probably sharing with your family that you've been stealing from work and are about to get fired over Thanksgiving dinner might not be the right time. <laughs> so it is rarely the wrong time to do the right thing. Jonah chapter 1. In the book of Jonah, we read a story that every single one of us can relate to. Jonah was a prophet to the nation of Israel. The year was around 760 B.C., about eh, close to 800 years before Jesus would come. Jonah's story is a story that most everybody is familiar with to some degree. You may have never read the Bible. This may be your first step in a church in, the first, in a long time or maybe even forever, and yet you've probably heard some semblance of the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet to the nation of Israel, but he's not known for being a prophet to the nation of Israel. He's really known for being a prophet to a pagan land, uh, uh, people in the city called Nineveh, which was part of the Assyrian Empire. Didn't honor God, didn't know God. Jonah was called to be a prophet to those people. His story is only four chapters long in the Bible, and yet it is a story that moves so easily you can read it in probably 15 to 20 minutes, and it is well worth the read because God teaches us a lot about our lives through the life of this person we read of by the name of Jonah. Now, some will say Jonah was a figurative person in Scripture, that he didn't exist, that he was just written there to prove a point. Uh, some would say that, you know, this is a mythological story, that the Bible only has it in there to, you know, teach some overarching truth about how we should live our lives. I completely disagree. Uh, this is a historical account. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 treated Jonah as a historical figure. If it's good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. And so what we're reading of here is an account of, what, of exactly what happened in history. Uh, it captures for us literally what took place in miraculous fashion. 
And so we read of the story of Jonah, and he is exhibit A of this principle that it is rarely the wrong time for us to do the right thing. So let's begin to read through this passage. You've got it uh, on the overhead in front of you. If you brought your Bibles, I would love for you to, to, to turn there still and to read through it. If you didn't, you can read through it with me on the overhead here. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 is where we're going to start. We won't go through the whole book. That's not the purpose this morning. I'm not trying to preach the whole story of Jonah. I'm just simply trying to, uh, to tie the parallel between his life and his choices to what we're looking at this morning, that we can reset from times of rebellion in our lives. So let's begin. Jonah chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, there are two words in yellow there that I've put, and that's for a reason. I want to just explain those words real quickly. The city of Nineveh, we can gain this really from the end of the book of Jonah in chapter 4. The city of Nineveh, most would say, was around 600,000 population at this time. This is a, this is a, a ma- major city. Nineveh would serve as the capital city for a time of the Assyrian Empire at the height of its, uh, of its reign, of its rule in this world. And so Nineveh was a major city. This, we're talking the New York City, <laughs> you know, to some degree of its day. 600,000 people there. It was uh, a city that was always moving, always shaking. It was a significant city, but it was a city that was wicked. It, it was a pagan nation. They didn't honor God. They didn't know who God was. They didn't seek to live in a way to honor Him. And so they were a city who needed to be reminded that they were accountable before God, and yet God loved them enough to send a prophet to them. And so God sends, in verses 1 and 2, he comes to Jonah, and he says, I want you to go to the Ninevites, to the people of Nineveh, and I want you to proclaim to them their sin. Remember, exposure leads to closure. I want you to expose their sin so that they can turn to me. Next verse, verse 3. It says, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Let me just stop there. Tarshish was a city that was on pretty much the edge of the, of the, uh, of the Western world. Uh, it, it would have been a city completely unfamiliar to Jonah. Jonah would have likely never been there. He would have been, for the most part, unfamiliar with the city of Tarshish. It was a city that dealt a lot with precious metals, so there were often ships coming through that city, traveling constantly. But one thing we have to understand is that it was exactly the opposite direction from Nineveh. And that you can look at it on a map. When God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh, it was a turn east. But when Jonah decided to go to Tarshish, it was a turn, even geographically, to the west. It was completely the opposite direction of where God told Jonah that he needed to go. And so God says, verse 1 and 2, Jonah, arise and go to the people of Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I think I will arise and I will go this direction. And he goes the exact opposite direction. It says, so he went down to Joppa. He found a ship which was going to Tarshish. That wasn't uncommon. Again, that was a city that was busy, hustling and bustling. He says, and he paid the fare. He went down into it, into the ship, to go with them, the sailors, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. From is is, uh, highlighted there twice. Here's why. Because whenever we make a decision, no matter how small or how big, to rebel against what we know is right, what we know God wants of us, when we take one decision, one step into that direction of rebellion against God, understand this, that regardless of who we are from Billy Graham on down, that when we step into rebellion, it is always a step away from God. Always. You say, Brooks, it's not that big a deal. Hey, I, you know, I just changed a number on my tax return. 
That's appropriate, right, since taxes are due tomorrow. I changed the number on my tax return. Now, what's the big deal? Nobody's going to know. Everybody's doing it. Doesn't matter. If you and your heart know what's right and you know what's of God and you choose to step in the direction of that rebellion, it's going to be a step away from God. That's what happens to Jonah. He proves that to us perfectly. Verse 4, it says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. And so it's God himself, right, who brings this storm. What does this tell us? It tells us that God cared enough about a rebellious prophet to do whatever it took to give him an opportunity to do what was right. Now, some people would look here and they would say, there, there goes God again, that God of the Old Testament. He's mean, always mad, always waking up on the wrong side of the bed. That's all I see in the Old Testament. God's always mad at somebody. We miss it if we think that. God is orchestrating these circumstances. Why? He's an authority. He's creator, right? He can do this to give rebellious Jonah the opportunity to do what's right. And so it says it's God himself who takes the responsibility to exert his control over nature. And in much the same way, he just may be orchestrating circumstances in your life, possibly, to bring you back to him as well. Verse 5. It says, And the sailors became afraid. Every man cried to his God. Remember, again, this is a nation that didn't honor God, so probably filled with people on this boat that didn't honor God. So they cry out to their false gods. They threw the cargo, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Next verse, verse 6. It says, so the captain approached him, and he said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Each man said to his mate, come, let us cast lots. This was something they did in the ancient world. It was the way they thought they could determine uh, you know, what destiny was or what the right choice would be. I wouldn't recommend doing this today. So come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? They're grilling him with all these questions. In other words, all right, we're in the midst of this big storm. We do this for a living. We are sailors. We've never seen a storm like this. Everything's pointing to you. What is going on? Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Verse 9, he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became, next verse, extremely frightened, and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men that he was fleeing from, uh, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Now let me, let me just say this real quickly. That whole section reminds us that whenever we choose to do the wrong thing, Whenever we choose to rebel and disobey, it doesn't matter if you are a follower of Christ or not. When you choose to do the wrong thing, there is a principle that kicks into high gear. And the principle is this, is that more often than not, there will be others that will be affected by your rebellion more even perhaps than you will be. These sailors didn't ask for any of this. Verse 13, however, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And then they called on the Lord, and they said, we earnestly pray, O Lord. Interesting, now they're calling on Jonah's God. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. 
And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. And then then just get a sense of the magnitude of this next section. If you've ever been on a cruise ship, if you've ever been deep sea fishing, you've been out where you can't see land, imagine the size of the storm and what happens next. So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. And then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. I have no idea what kind of fish it was. You can Google it. You can read all kinds of books, and everybody will have all their ideas whether this happened or not. I think we've already established by Jesus' words that Jonah was a real historical figure. In fact, Jesus even compares his own death and burial and resurrection to this episode in Jonah's life. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man. Jesus ties a very strong parallel, treats him as a historical figure. I have no idea what that looked like. I don't ever want to meet a fish like this. Hope to never catch one on my little, you know, Zebco with my worm on a hook. I I don't want any business with this thing. But the Lord appointed this great fish. Four times in the book of Jonah, this word appointed is used. And what it shows us, do not miss this, is that God, again, loves Jonah enough, even in his rebellion, to pursue him. And I'm just telling you, you know it as well as I do. You don't pursue things that you don't love. I don't pursue bean bean sprouts. I don't love bean sprouts. I pursue crystals. I pursue Krispy Kremes. I don't pursue bean sprouts. You pursue what you love, don't you? God pursued Jonah because God knew the cost of disobedience. God knew that rebellion leads to hardened heart, leads to devastation, and so he pursued him. And he went to whatever means were necessary. And for some here this morning, You may be in a place in your life where you have such disregard for what is right. And you have such disregard for what God wants for you. And yet if you can just look, you'll see that God has fired shots across your bow. (laughs) And he's orchestrated circumstances and he's had people speak into your life. He's done this in my life on so many occasions. All because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to suffer the cost of what disobedience always, always brings. And so appoints this great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah's in the stomach of the fish. Next verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah did the obvious. (laughs) He prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. Verses 2 through verse 9. We won't read those, but it captures the prayer that Jonah prayed. It was a prayer really from the gut. His gut and the fish's gut. And he prayed, pouring out his heart to God. And he he basically got right with God. Chapter 2, verse 9 helps us to understand. He says, this is what he said at the end of this prayer. He says, but I will sacrifice to you, he says to God, with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. This is the stake in the ground. All right, this is Jonah saying, all right, I have seen, you wanted me to go east, I went west. You told me to do this, I did that. And now, God, you have gotten my attention. I understand you pursued me even here to the belly of this fish. I understand it, I get it, and that which I have vowed, I will pay. In other words, I'm going to hit reset here, and I'm going to make things right. How do we hit reset? We hit reset in instances of rebellion whenever we choose to do what is right and trust the results to God. That's how we reset from rebellion. Jonah will hit the reset button here. It was in his capacity to do it, in his alone. He chooses, I will now do what's right. That which I have vowed, I will pay. 
And he determines, no matter what the cost is, I'm going to go where God leads me. Next verse. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. As God is in control of pursuing us in our rebellion, he also is in control of giving us the opportunity to do what is right. And when we honor him by doing what is right, the Bible calls that obedience. When we obey and honor him, he also will honor us. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that everybody is going to line up around us and give us pats on the back and tell us how wonderful we are. Our obedience many times will cost us. You might choose to do what's right now in the workplace, and you may still get fired the next day. But you know what? When you do what's right and you let God begin to fight your battles for you, and you let him pull together all the details, and he honors you because you honored him, whatever he chooses to do in the midst of those trying times will be far better than whatever the conclusion would have been if you had to continue with a hardened heart in rebellion against him. And so God orchestrates circumstances. The Lord, he commanded the fish. It vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Next passage. This is my favorite verse in the whole, the whole book of Jonah. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. <laughs> Man. I'm glad for second times. I'm really glad for second times. And so the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, it's the same command, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation, which I'm going to tell you. And so Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. There's your reset. I love the way the Bible pictures that. God says, Jonah, same command, second take. Arise and go. And Jonah arose and went. And so what area of your life this morning is an area of rebellion for you? It may be small and insignificant or it may be on the big end of the scale. But on what area of your life do you know what the right thing is to do? And yet you've chosen not to do it. It is rarely the wrong time to do what's right. And God loves you so much that if you choose to plant your feet and say, you know what, God, to honor you, I will from this point forward walk in obedience. What you will find often is that God says, you've honored me, now I will honor you. And I will give you the strength. And where it costs you, I'll work it for good. But there is no price tag on honor and integrity and righteousness. And so where do you need to do what's right? How long are you going to let it linger? Maybe it's the practice. Maybe it's a choice. Maybe it's a behavior. Maybe it's an attitude. How long are you going to let it linger when you know what the right thing is to do? Why not just choose today? to drive the stake in the ground like Jonah prayed, what I have promised that I will do. Why not today say, today, God, the best that I can, I'm going to take the step. I'm going to make the call. I'm going to make the change. Whatever it is, I will do what's right to honor you. For Jonah, he saw a whole nation turn 
turn to God. Oh, his attitude was in the tank. If you read the book, you see that. God still had a lot of major work to do in Jonah's life. His attitude was horrible. Chapter 4 shows that. But he did what was right. And a whole nation was spared. I don't know what God will do with your choice to obey. But I'll tell you this. That if you choose to honor him, he'll take care of the results. So trust him. Let's pray. Lord, we could have 350 people in here today. And there may be 350 different applications of this this message. Lord, you know our hearts. Thank you that you love us enough to pursue us. God, we thank you for grace. Thank you for resets. Thank you for second chances and third and fifth and tenth and twentieth. Lord, thank you that you care so much more about where we're headed than where we were. And God, I pray today, I understand, I think, that today could be a significant day for a lot of people based on what they do with this message. Lord, there, there could be a family saved because someone chooses to do what's right. There could be a name saved. Integrity salvaged because someone today chooses to do what's right. Lord, it's endless what you could do if those of us who've heard this just choose to obey and trust the results to you. And so God, give courage where it's needed. But Lord, help us also to remember that we can't even obey once without your strength and power in us. And so for some, God, the first choice is to yield their lives to Christ. The first choice is to turn from sin and invite Jesus to take over their lives as their Savior and as their Lord. Many have made that choice already, God. But help us to apply this message as we need to, to honor you and to see you in return honor us. And so, God, we thank you for what you're going to do in these next few moments. And we praise you in advance, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.